The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Awesome. So, if you want to keep your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be spending our time, as Gerard just read those, that, that passage out, in verses 12 to 18. Uh, if you're a newer church, one of the things that we like to do as a church is to walk through books or sections of the Bible and, and really understand what God's Word has to say to us. And so if you're visiting this morning, just to catch you up, Paul has been, uh, he's in prison and he's writing to a church in Philippi, a town called Philippi. And he planted that church actually, many years before. And as he writes to this church, he remembers these people, these, these beloved Christians, with deep affection and with deep admiration as he sits in that jail cell. And we can pick up as he's sitting in that jail cell how he's, he's thinking about them, he's thinking about how they've supported him, how they've sacrificed for him. Even though life as a Christian in Philippi has not been all that easy for them, and he writes to them just to thank them, to encourage them, to demonstrate and express his love for them as they walk together in the pilgrimage of faith. Last week we looked at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 where Paul was really encouraging them to this really practical element, this really practical aspect of Christianity, which is to walk in humility, considering others more important than ourselves. We each have this nagging desire to place ourselves at the center of the universe, and Paul, in our passage last week, really urged the church to put others first, and to be like Jesus, who is the epitome of all humility. God did not stay in heaven, but he came to earth, and he humbled himself. He, he came not in a, in a grand gesture like coming down onto a mountainside or into a palace. He came as a baby, and he humbled himself. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient Paul says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And today, Paul is going to continue on that theme, continuing, continuing to urge the church onwards on this really, on another practical element of Christianity, or another practical part of faith. He's going to talk to us today about obedience, what it means to be obedient as children of God. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Holy Spirit, we, we are so grateful that we have your word before us. Father, we thank you that you have given this to us, you, you re revealed yourself to us in this word. And Holy Spirit, we know that what we ultimately need is for you to open our hearts to this. So, so, Lord, I'm asking for your help this morning as uh, I stand here and, and preach, Father, that uh, my words would remain mine and your words would come to us, Father. Your words would be authoritative in our hearts, Lord. Help us to trust in your word where we haven't been, Lord. Help us to find encouragement in your word where we haven't been, Father. Help us to be, Lord, Lord, challenge and convict us where we need that, Lord. Grow us this morning. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
I'm normally the kind of person who likes to obey the rules. If there's a rule, I want to follow it. Like if I see a sign that says, keep off the grass, I stay off the grass. Like that's just, I, I just, I know some people like, some people say things that are just crazy to me, like rules are made to be broken. And every time I hear that, I want to say, no, they weren't. They were not made to be broken. The person who made that rule did not make that rule so that you could break it. I, I like the rules. I like keeping the rules. And, and recently, I had a bit of an ethical dilemma about rule keeping. That is, uh, at the start of the school holidays, I took my two sons uh, camping. And the original plan was, when I booked in the site online, the original plan was just, to, just for me and one of my sons, just for him and I to have some quality time together. But after I booked it, we decided, actually, it's probably best that I take both of them. It's going to be more special to both. And so we did that. The issue was, though, I couldn't go back online and edit the booking. I couldn't change the booking to add in an extra child. And so I had this, ex, I had this ethical dilemma, like, what, what do I do? I, there was no phone number to call. There was no way to change it online. It's a, one of its like a council uh, website. It was difficult to change it. So one option was do nothing. Just go and just, you know, it's not like one extra child. They're only like six and seven years old. It's not like they're one of them, an extra one is going to take up, you know, precious, valuable resources from that particular park that, that day. So, you know, that was one option. But being a rule keeper, I just couldn't take that option. I just, I couldn't, it didn't sit well with me. This is a real dilemma for me. Another option was, I thought through, what if I book another site? That way, my conscience can be clear. I've paid for it. And, and, and you know, we'll, I won't make one of the boys sleep on the side on his own somewhere over there in the bush. Like, we're going to stay together. But at least I've paid for it. At least I've given the council the money that the council has owed. But what if another family wants to go camping and they can't go camping that night because someone else has booked that site, it's been reserved, and what if I get in the way of that and I was just getting into this dilemma, I was getting to myself and into, into these knots... A third option was, and I did consider this is confession time, what if I just kind of forge the, doc, the document a little bit? So you, you get sent this PDF thing where you print out and it says number of people two, and on, you know, I, it wasn't too hard to change the, the two to a three. And, um, you know, I kind of got my, my Leonardo DiCaprio, catch me if you can, kind of vibe on. I, I did you know, put the number three in there and printed it out, and it looked really good, and I, you couldn't tell the difference. But I just couldn't do it. I didn't, I just, so, you know, I didn't go ahead with that. I, I made sure it was two and I was going to face the music. Uh, the, the fourth option which I decided to take was take the exact right amount of money, that was $7 for this one child, take it and put it in the car, and if the ranger comes by and wants to know why there is three people here and not two, well, I've got the money, I can try and explain, I'll do my very best, and then everything will be fine. And that was the option that I went with, and no ranger came by, and so I never actually paid for my extra child. Um, so, you know, a bit, bit of a tricky di ethical dilemma. I, it, it was tough, and I was a little bit paranoid the whole camping trip that someone's going to come by, and they're going to see it, and I had my speech ready just in case. I like obeying the rules. I don't like breaking the rules. Obedience to me is something, I'm not sure if it was my parents or my temperament, just obedience is something that just kind of, I just feel like it has to happen. Not all the time, though. That's why I said at the beginning, I generally am that kind of person. I'm not a perfect rule keeper by any stretch. When it comes to following Jesus, 
the idea of obedience, and it, it can be one of the trickier things to navigate. If, if you're not a Christian, you might assume, as lots of people do, that obedience is actually everything to being a Christian. Obedience is everything. You have to be a good person. You have to obey the rules for God to love you. You have to obey in order to be a Christian. That is, as we'll soon see, not true. God's grace is for sinners. It's for disobedient people. Jesus said, I came to call not the healthy, but the sick. Alternatively, you might believe that grace nullifies the need to obey and that God doesn't really care about your behavior. That also is not true. Then there's also the the complex issue of whether or not obedience is purely a matter of of our outward behavior, actions that we do, or whether it's a matter of the heart, something that we've got to do on the inside. Well, in our passage today, Paul is going to talk about obedience, and my hope is that his words are going to clear the air a bit. They're going to shed some clarifying light on all of us. This passage is going to teach us, A, the role of obedience, B, the cost of obedience, and C, the joy of obedience. So, firstly, the role of obedience. Looking firstly at verses 12 and 13, these verses are absolutely critical in understanding the role, or we could even say the order of obedience when it comes to following Jesus. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, because Paul begins this sentence with the word, therefore, it means we've got to go back and look prior to this and look at what is actually informing this sentence here. And if you weren't here last week, this is what we looked at. And there in chapter 2, verses uh, verses 1 to 2, 1 to 11, Paul waxed eloquent on the preeminence of Jesus. He is equal with God. We, he talked about God's unbelievable incarnation. He came to earth and then his crucifixion. And then he looked at the exhilarating exaltation and glorification of Jesus. Essentially, the majority of the core Christian truths that we believe. And, and when he talked about that there, he connected these high, lofty, wonderful, incredible truths about Jesus with the very gritty and practical application of the gospel of being humble, of putting others first. Here, Paul maximizes the impact of those truths with another practical command to be obedient to God, to continue obeying God. Previously, he said, Jesus became obedient to God to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now he says, just as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that gives us a bit of a helpful definition of what obedience looks like, what obedience is. Obedience and working out your salvation are synonymous in this passage. Obedience is working out your salvation. Now, this should be understand when we think about working out, this isn't like working out our bodies at the gym. It's not like working out a difficult math sum. Working out is working is the outworking of salvation in our lives. The salvation that Jesus has, the, the saving work that God has done for us. 
You can only work out something that has already been worked into you. If you put an empty ice tray into the freezer, you can't expect to get ice out. And the same is true with our obedience to God. Obedience is letting our salvation, letting the saving work of God have its full effect in our lives to the degree that it comes out in our words and it comes out in our actions. Our salvation, when God saves us, that, is, that at least begins with the complete removal of our sins. If you're a Christian, it means that you've been saved from your sins by Jesus Christ. Our, our sins, which are the peak of, of rebellion and treason against a holy and perfect and just and innocent God, our sins make us deserving of his justice. If I want God to enact justice upon some atrocity over there, I've also got to be okay with God enacting his perfect justice against the, upon the same atrocities that exist within my heart. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that in his death, Jesus absorbed God's just wrath against my sin. He took it on, and I am no longer responsible for the debt of my sin. I am no longer responsible for that. And not only is my atrocious record taken off me and given to Jesus, but his perfect record of obedience is placed onto me in exchange for my sin. This means that if you're a Christian, you're not just neutral. You're not just a blank slate. We are now inexplicably deserving of all of the blessings and benefits that Jesus Christ has owed. And I, I, I balk at that word deserving. I struggle to say it. The apostle, but the Apostle John wrote, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to be children of God. It means we are entitled to the hard-earned blessings of Jesus Christ, having never done anything to deserve them whatsoever. And because I am no longer a, a wretched sinner, but now I am a, a perfect child of God... I can, there's now nothing between me and my maker. I can have a relationship with my, with my God and my Savior. And, and, and heaven has been brought into the eternal bliss, into the new heavens and the new earth, with, with God, full frontal with God, having nothing between us and him. That's the water in the tray. It's the salvation that was worked into us by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience, then, is the outworking of that. It's that happening in our hearts and coming out in our actions. We sometimes think, don't we, that obedience is the ladder that we have to build to get to, uh, to, get to God, and each good deed is just another rung in the ladder. Certainly, if you're not a Christian, that might be your idea of what Christianity is. Certainly, that's what a lot of people believe Christianity is, that it's something that you've got to do, you've got to be a good person, and then God will love you. But there is actually no ladder in Christianity. God came down to us. He put on flesh. He condescended to our level so that he could meet us in the midst of our sins. And we've got to get the order right with that. We've got to make sure that the horse is in front of the cart. The order is crucial. Obedience, in order to be saved, is as different to Christianity as night is from day. 
Trying to make our way to God through good deeds is the antithesis of Christianity. It is an anti-gospel. And this can become really tricky because the gospel and this anti-gospel look really similar. In fact, they're made up of almost the exact same ingredients, but the order is backwards. One of them is Christianity. One of them looks like Christianity. Sounds like Christianity, acts like Christianity, smells like Christianity, but it is the opposite of Christianity. And I think this is why Paul says to obey with fear and trembling. If salvation came at the cost of Jesus' life and obedience is the outworking of that salvation, it means that we should take obedience really seriously. We've got to get that order right. Some people don't want to talk about obedience. Some people believe that it might actually scare people off from Christianity, but I believe that that is a a horrible error. If the grace that we preach does not result in obedience, then we're preaching a weak version of grace. The grace of God is so powerful that when we receive it, there is nothing that it doesn't touch, including our actions and our words. Now, even if we get the order right, there is another common mistake that we can make, which is to think of this transactionally. God did something good for me, so now I'm going to do something good for God in return. But Paul seems to anticipate this error with the next line. He says, for, so because of this, it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, That there might be my favorite sentence in the whole book of Philippians. Like, I I was so excited when we started preaching this Philippians series because of that line there. It is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. Our will is our motivational center. It's, it's our desire. It's what we really want, and it's what we set our hearts on. And Paul says here that God is working on our will to bring it in line with his good purpose. He's transforming our will so that the things that he calls us to be obedient in start becoming the things that we actually want to do ourselves. God doesn't want begrudging obedience from us. When we read his commands in the Bible, he doesn't want us to go, fine, I'll do that, whatever. I've got, I've got three children, and I'm getting a lot of, fine, hey, it's time to come and have dinner, fine. We don't have, you don't have to eat our food. You, like, you can seriously go hungry if you want, fine. It's, just, it's begrudging obedience. God doesn't want this kind of begrudging obedience from us. He's bringing our wills into line with his so that we don't look at his commands and go, oh, I really don't want to do that. We look at his commands and we look at, before that is gospel, but then we look at his commands and we know that he's actually working in our hearts to, go, to make us go, I actually want what he wants. Many years ago, and I think I've shared this story before, there was a a TV show that I was really into. I was absolutely hooked on it. It had had sucked me in. It was released every week on Monday nights, and so that was the night to to watch it, and I absolutely loved watching this TV show. Now, there was absolutely nothing 
redeemable about this show at all. It was full of ungodly content. And not only that, because it wasn't... Excuse me, not only that, because it wasn't available in Australia without paying some massive uh, subscription fee, I downloaded it illegally. So I was downloading illegally or stealing something that uh, was actually making my heart grow cold towards God. There was nothing about that scenario that was in any way obedience to God. It didn't look like obedience at all. And I had friends coming to me and saying, hey, I don't think you should be watching that show. It's not a good show for you. It's actually a really bad show for you. And also, you shouldn't be stealing it. You shouldn't be downloading it illegally. And I said something very, very foolish, which was, I'll stop downloading this illegally when the Holy Spirit convicts me to stop. Now, just so you know, if... In the Bible, even one of the commandments says, you shall not steal. You don't need the Holy Spirit to come and back that up and convince you one-on-one. Okay, if God's Word says it, you, don't, you shouldn't need that. But I'm special, so yeah, I, 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 that one didn't apply to me for some reason. But then, by God's grace and in His kindness, He intervened. And He worked in me His will to no longer desire watching that show anymore. He was bringing my loves in line with his loves, with, with his good purpose for me. And I stopped watching that show. Not begrudgingly. There, there was, it would literally went from Monday nights was the night that I watched this show, and then Monday nights after that was like, I, I really actually don't care about it anymore. Like I stopped midway through season three. Like, so you know it's real. Like, it's, or, you know, it's... I don't really know what happened after that. And I don't care. I just don't really care about that anymore. This is what the psalmist meant when he writes, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. It doesn't mean that God looks at our desires, looks what's in our heart and then grants our wishes. It means that God gives our hearts new desires. He gives our hearts, it's their heart desires. God works in us to make us not only want to obey him, but also to want the things that he is calling us to. Not only that, but Paul says God is working in us not just to will, but to work. Our obedience to God is not a private enterprise that we have to come up with on our own. God is at work in our obedience to improve us and to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. God is at work in us to work. And, and, and as we see that happening, we'll find it more and more straightforward to obey Jesus. You see, God is, in that work, is at work in all of us to mold us into what he created us to be. If you're here and, and you're not a Christian, you might be considering following Jesus right now. And you need to know that you don't have to be perfect to begin following him. In fact, admitting that you're a hopeless sinner is crucial for repenting and following him. And as you follow him, the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will be at work in your heart, highlighting to you the things that need to change, helping you to want those changes and helping you to change well. This is what is meant by the phrase, according to his good purpose. God has a good purpose for us. His purpose in creating us was that we would glorify him. 
And even though sin fractured our capacity to do that and left us with no hope, God came in the person of Jesus Christ to resume his good purpose in us, which is restore, to restore us to full humanity in the likeness of Jesus Christ. God's purpose for us, his good purpose for us, is to make us more and more like Jesus in every way. And he uses all things, the very big and the very small, the very hard and the very easy, the very good and the very bad, to shape us, to mold us, to craft us, to polish, melt, carve and sculpt us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is our destiny as Christians. And Paul, if you were here on the first week in Philippians 1, said, He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God's one day going to finish the job. He's one day going to finish it and will be made like Jesus Christ perfectly in every single way. To quote C.S. Lewis, he says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a God or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. The Christian life is one where God credits us with the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He works in us to make us to want him to obey him perfectly. He works in us to, make, to help us to obey him well. And there's going to come a time where that work will be done to its fullest and most final end, our glorification, where we will be made into beautiful creatures of dizzying beauty, reflecting his sensational glory back to him in unending joy forever. And God's going to get that done. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know why you would want anything else but to follow Jesus. That's the reality for Christians. If that's you, let me, remind, let me invite you once again to follow Jesus. He is so much better than anything that you've got going on. And if you are a Christian, can I ask you this question? I'd love for you to consider one area in your life, an area of sin in your life, that you wish was gone altogether. Maybe other people know about this sin in your life. Maybe they don't. Maybe you're the only one who knows it. I want you to hear this. God wants you to be free from that sin. But he's not waiting at the end of the track with his arms folded, checking his watch, waiting for you to hurry up and get there. He is in your lane. He is with you, walking alongside you in the details of, those li- of your life. God wants to walk alongside you with this. And not only that, but he wants you to walk this path with other believers. There is no such thing as an unfinished Christian. If you have a pulse, then you're not finished yet. If you just took a breath just then, you're not finished yet. God is still working on you. So that's the role of obedience in our lives. Secondly, we get to the cost of obedience. 
So as Paul encourages the church to continue to walk in obedience to God, he reminds them of a couple of important realities about what it means to obey God. The first has to do with the relationship between obedience and sanctification. Sanctification is God's work in us to make us more like Jesus, and obedience is our willing participation in that work. But here's the thing. When God highlights areas of our life that needs to change, where we need to submit to his rule and authority, where we need to actually come unto him and obey him, we will often find ourselves resisting and being quite contentious about that. And this is why Paul says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. As I was writing my, this sermon this week uh, in my office at home, uh, I just sent one of my children to his bedroom. He needed to go there. And it was, it was a bad moment. And even though my office door was closed and his bedroom door was closed, I could still hear him yelling, you're not the boss of me, at the top of his voice. And the neighbors two doors down, I'm pretty sure, heard it as well. Like everybody in our neighborhood knows that I'm not the boss of one of my children, according to him. And so I went in and I told him that he's not going to come out until he can calm down for at least 10 minutes and has some quiet time for at least 10 minutes. And I said, you need to stay here and you need, until you calm down. And he said, you need, to, you need to go to your room and you need to calm down. That's what grumbling and arguing looks like. Grumbling is the inner disposition of resistance to God's instruction, and arguing is the articulation of that inner disposition against God. That's what it looks like when God comes along and highlights, hey, you need to change this. There's this issue in your life, and we say back to God, you're not the boss of me. When God highlights our sin, it always stings, but it's a kindness to us. It's a good thing for us. Sometimes this happens when, when we get caught out doing something we shouldn't be doing. Sometimes it happens when the Spirit compels us to confess, even when we could have taken that to the grave and nobody would have ever found out about it. You see, a good physician does not conceal the infection. A good physician cleans it and exposes it to antibiotics to heal it. This is what God does. And as uncomfortable and disappointing and embarrassing as it is to continue to find more sin in our hearts, Paul says, don't grumble and argue about it. Don't resist it. The reason why, Paul says, is so that you may be pure and blameless, children of God who are faultless. Don't grumble and argue, because this is God's work at making you blameless and pure like Jesus Christ. Being blameless and pure generally have similar kind of meaning. One refers more so to the outer work of remaining above reproach, that's, of, that's blamelessness. The other to the inner work of not harboring sinful dispositions, that's purity. You see, God isn't interested in obedience that only goes skin deep. He, he wants the, our obedience to, to come out of our hearts. But he also doesn't want there just to, to just be obedience that is only in our hearts and not in our actions. It's both an inner and an outer work. This is the scope of being pure and blameless. God is pouring all of our beings, our, our inner self and our outer self, into the mold of Jesus' perfect greatness. He wants us to go, uh, undergo a full and thorough renovation to be just like Jesus. And even though it stings, this is a kindness of God. 
I wonder if you can think right now that a moment in your life that has stung like this, a time in your life where God in, in his kindness came to you and said, hey, I love you, but you're sitting in my chair. You're not the center of the universe. I am. And we need to address this sin in your life. Can you look at that and see that that was actually God using that thing? God was using that to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the first important reality. The second important reality about obedience is that we're called to be obedient to God within a world that is hostile to God. Let's be honest. Obedience to God would be a lot easier if everybody around us did it. That would be much more simple, right? But we live in a world that is hostile to God, a world that Paul refers to as being a crooked and perverted generation. God calls us to be distinct from the world, but not distant from the world. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. The reason why is so that in becoming more and more like Jesus, we would shine the light of the gospel to a dark world around us, shining like stars in a dark sky. There is plenty about our world right now that we might think, yes, that is crooked and perverted. That's absolutely true. But I think it's a mistake to go to war with the world. God sends us into the world that we might demonstrate Christ's likeness to a world that needs Jesus. And the world will come to know who God is. This has always been the case for God's people. Whether it was the Israelites just before they stepped into the land of Canaan, crooked and perverted generation in there. It was the same when Jesus sent out his disciples as sheep among wolves. It's the same when Paul writes to this Philippian church, they're in a hostile world that is hostile to Christianity. I mean, the church got planted out of a stint in prison that Paul did in Philippi. And it goes for us too as we read his words here this morning, read God's word here this morning in Caloundra. It's always been the case. And we might look at that, we might look at this dark world that we live in and think to ourselves, how on earth can I survive this? How on earth can I sustain obedience to God in this without fully extracting myself from the world? I mean, this is a tricky thing, right? It's a tricky thing to live in a world where right now, every single movie we watch as a family, I've got to check it out first. Every movie, even with a G rating, I've got to check it out first. I can't trust the, the, the ratings guidance anymore. Every single thing that is happening in our world, we, not every single thing, but there's lots in our world that we might get, that is, it's, it's a crooked and perverted world. How, how do we maintain obedience in that without fully pulling ourselves away from the world? Well, Paul seems to anticipate this question by saying, by holding firm to the word of life. The word that gives life That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have the best news ever. If you're a Christian, it means that God has removed your sin, he's removed your guilt, he's removed your shame, and those things no longer have any kind of say over you ever again. In the great courtroom of heaven, God looks at the Christian and says, not guilty. You are not guilty anymore. 
It's the mercy of God to pardon our sin at the greatest cost and expense to himself that enables us to look at this world and with Paul in Romans 8 say, wait, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Who can accuse God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who who is the one who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from that kind of love? Paul has been running and laboring for this. This is what his boast is. For the church to get this and to understand that because of what he, God has done for us, we have every reason to gladly devote our lives to him in every way. Finally, we have the joy of obedience. Our passage ends with these words. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Excuse me. Now, this is quite an evocative image. And Paul is using this analogy of suffering and sacrifice and offering to demonstrate that while there is a cost in obeying Jesus Christ, there is also great joy in doing so. So Paul, being an obedient Christian, he is currently sitting in jail under house arrest, in chains in Rome. The church, having been obedient, had made this massive financial sacrifice to support him. But his tone is not of somebody who is looking at everything that he has lost for Jesus. His tone is looking at everything that is to be gained from following Jesus. And Paul's words here, they are a bit strange, but they're meant to be an encouragement to the Philippians. It's Paul's humble way of acknowledging the sacrificial service of the Philippians to God's kingdom. And it's as if he's saying, hey, you're doing a good job. Hang in there. Keep going. I'm proud of you, and you should also be proud too. So the idea of, of a drink offering being poured out on a, on, a, on a sacrifice like this would have been familiar to both Jews and Gentiles. In those days... A priest would have made a, a, a sacrifice, some kind of an offering, uh, before their deity, before, they were, before their God. And afterwards, pour out a drink offering, uh, some kind of beverage, over the top of it to complement it. Now, in this procedure, the first offering was the main offering. It was the main sacrifice, the main thing to focus on. That was the important part of the procedure. And then the poured out drink part of it, that was simply that simply accompanied it. It was it played second fiddle to the main event. And incredibly, Paul says, I am the drink offering and you are the main event. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about. He looks at what they've done, the Philippian church have done for God's kingdom, and in his humble evaluation, he looks at their sacrifice and he sees that what he's done comes second to what they have given up for God's kingdom. Can I encourage you for just a moment? I'm sure if we went around this room and asked everybody, and if everybody was honest, we would come across many, many stories where sacrifices and acts of love have been made for God's kingdom. 
And I don't just mean in the really big stuff. I mean in the little things that nobody sees. The prayers offered. The meal that was taken around. That little word of encouragement that nobody else heard. Things you did for God when no one was looking. Things you did for, for another believer when nobody was looking. The kinds of things that we would never share with anyone. The kinds of things that we would deem as insignificant. God sees those. God sees those sacrifices. God sees what you had to go without in order to help that person in need. God has heard your ongoing sacrificial prayers. God has seen your service. God has seen your sacrifice. And even though right now things might not have had the outcome on this side of eternity that you had hoped for, trust God that on the other side of eternity, all things are going to be made perfect and good by him. Here's the thing. When Paul says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, it sounds like he's talking about his death. And even though there was once a time where Paul would have looked at the prospect of being in chains in prison for Christ and awaiting his execution, he would have looked at that life and thought that was a waste of a life. That would have been a life that had been run in vain and was fruitless. But he doesn't think that way now. He knows the honor and joy of serving Jesus Christ, even to the, to the degree that his life might end in prison. It's the opportunity to lay down his life for Christ that causes him to be glad and rejoice. Literally, the Greek says, I rejoice and rejoice with you. He's double dipping in joy. Like, I'm all for double dipping. I don't, I'm not one of those people who really cares about germs and stuff. Like, you double dip, you dip. You know, I, I think there needs to be two lots of hummus on that carrot stick. That's just my opinion. Double dipping's cool. Paul double dips in, gray, in joy here. I rejoice and I rejoice with you, and you should rejoice with me. Rejoice and rejoice with me. He's run the race. He's labored for God's kingdom and has cost him everything. And this causes him to double down on his joy in Christ. What an immense joy and privilege it is to be obedient to God. What an immense joy and privilege and blessing it is to sacrifice for Jesus. What a joy it is to be on the transformative pilgrimage of faith where we are being transformed more and more by one degree of glory to another into the likeness of Jesus. Not only by our actions, but in our desires to be more like him, to be made like him. This is God's plan, and there is only increasing joy for all of those who would join in with God's work in that. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.